If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. Uh, we are nearing the end of a series that we have been in for the last, I don't know, seven or eight weeks on the seven deadly sins. The seven deadly sins. And uh, today uh, we are covering a topic that I know everybody has been anxious for me to get to, and it's the topic of lust. It's the topic of lust. Now, uh, as a reminder, uh, parents that have young ones sitting in the service today, um, the content is something that every parent will need to discuss with their child at some point. Uh, today, however, may not be the day uh, that you want to have that conversation over lunch. And so uh, if your children are in here and you're not prepared to have that conversation, uh, now is the time to take them down uh, to our amazing children's ministry team uh, downstairs that works week in and week out with the little blessings. And with that being said, um, in order for us to gain an understanding of what lust is, we need to establish a few things. Um, so please bear with me as we begin to walk through this. First, lust and sex are not the same thing. Amen, church? Amen. Lust and sex are not the same thing. Lust is sinful. Sex in and of itself is not. Lust, as it pertains to the seven deadly sins, is anything that would be considered a sexual sin. Now, sex can become sinful, but in and of itself, like I said, it is not sinful. Sex was designed by God, and it is good, and it is beautiful when it is done in the context in which God created it. And that context is marriage and marriage alone. Amen? Sex is only ever to be between one man and one woman in a completely exclusive and permanent commitment called marriage. Now, God created all of us to be sexual beings, and sex is a good gift that comes from God. And lust, as we will learn in just a few moments, is an abuse of that which is a good and perfect gift from God. Sex becomes sinful when our desire for that which is good becomes an attempt to satisfy a void that is in our soul. Now I want you to see what Paul said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against what? It's there on the screen. What is it? it sins against what? His own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And so church, it's not going to come to the screen for you, but those of you who are note takers and gold star students, I want you to please note that lust is idolatry of sex. Lust is idolatry of sex. And while sex in marriage is good, I want you to also note that it is not the ultimate thing in this life. And all of the husbands got worried for just a moment. Sex is not the ultimate thing in this life. It's not the ultimate thing in marriage. Because the body was made by God, and marriage is instituted by God, and sex is a gift from God, but the body was made primarily for the Lord. It was made primarily for the Lord, and we are to glorify Him in that body while we are living here upon this earth to try and enjoy God's gifts beyond or outside that which is intended to. It is lust, and lust is sinful. 
Now, I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 if you're not there. And I'm going to kick off in verse number 1. And he says, finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk. If you have a physical Bible, I would recommend underlining that word walk. And to please God just as you are doing, that you would do so more and more. Now I want to break down these eight verses or so that we're going to cover because it helps us to understand lust and how to live righteously, the opposite of that. Church, the Christian life is not a single step that instantly brings a believer into spiritual maturity. It's not. Rather, it is a lifelong walk while we are living here on the earth. And the Bible describes multiple times how Christians are supposed to follow that path or how do they walk along that path. In Romans 13, 13, we are commanded to walk properly as it is in the daytime. And Galatians 5.16 and Galatians 5.25 were exhorted to walk in the Spirit. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love. Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of light. The word walk is used over and over and over again regarding our walk or our relationship with the Lord as a part of our sanctification. That which is used to make us holy or to set, a, set us apart for holy use by God. Colossians chapter 2 says that we are to walk in Christ. Colossians 4, 5 says that we are to walk in wisdom. And these kinds of walks are to last until we meet Jesus face to face. Amen? Look at verse number 2. Paul goes on to say, For you know what instruction we gave to you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now hold tight right there. One meaning of remaining holy, according to Paul, is to avoid sexual sin. The Greek word pornea or porneia is what we see translated here in the Bible as sexual immorality. It is a general term that is used all throughout the New Testament and it encapsulates premarital sex, extramarital sex, and homosexuality. That word pornea is where we get our English word pornography from. And the church at Thessalonica, the the believers lived in a pagan culture in which sex outside of marriage was often considered an act of worship, one that honored the Greek god, specifically the Greek god Diana. In fact, at the church of Corinth, there was a temple in the center of the city to Diana where over a thousand prostitutes worked day in and day out so that people could come and worship a Greek god. Through the act of homosexuality, premarital sex, and extramarital sex. And so Paul is here reminding and urging the believer to keep away from any form of sexual sin no matter how acceptable it might be to the culture around you. Now look with me at verse 4. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all things. As we, are told, or as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. 
Self-controlled church, like we talked about last week, is an important way to deny inappropriate sexual passions and to honor God. It's a discipline that each one of us must learn and properly regard the body as dedicated to God as an honorable part of one's being self-controlled. Every time I, I think of the word self-control, I can't help but be drawn back to Romans chapter 12. And right out of the gate in Romans chapter 12, Paul underscores the importance of offering up one's body to God as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to him. And to take it even a step further than that, Paul made it very clear a few chapters before that in Romans chapter 6, that our bodies could really be used for instruments of evil or instruments of unrighteousness. And I want you to look at the screen. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And there's so much to unpack there, but Paul, I, I believe, gives a very clear picture here of the believer in Jesus Christ that uh, the things that we think and we say and we do with our body is to honor God, is to look like what Jesus would have done in Scripture. Now look with me at verse number 7 of 1 Thessalonians 4. And he says, for God, and this is so important to us, for God has not called us for impurity, but in what? Holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Christian in here today. God has called you to lead a holy life. He's called you to lead a holy life. God saved you and I not simply to rescue us from eternal judgment, but he intended to make us holy as he is holy, like Peter told us in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. And the process through which he makes us holy is a big churchy word that we like to call sanctification. And it involves a partnership with the Holy Spirit in this life. And as God works in us to make us holy, we as believers have a responsibility to cooperate with that work that's going on in us and through us. In fact, Philippians 2.12 commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not work for your your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, and to go beyond that, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, chapter 10, to be strong in the Lord. And the very next verse, he commands us to put on the whole armor uh, of God. Galatians 5 talks to us about living by the Spirit. And so obviously, the Christian life is not to be a passive life. It's not to be one where we only attend church on Sunday and think that that is sufficient enough to get us through until next Sunday. It is to be an active and in a vibrant relationship with God in which we partner with him every day as we seek his face like we were singing just a few minutes ago. And those of us who are in Christ 
and I say this uh, from personal experience, those of us who are in Christ have to engage in a battle every day with ourselves. We, we have been freed through our spiritual death and the resurrection of Christ. And we have been given uh, power over sin. And our old self, according to scripture, has been crucified spiritually in the same way that Christ was crucified. And the result is that sin no longer has authority over the believer's life. We have been set free. Amen? We've been set free from the power of sin in our life. We have not, however, lost our desire to sin. We haven't. We still want to sin. At times, we still want to sin, even though we know how destructive that sin can be in our lives. We still want to. And Scripture has commanded each one of us as believers to not volunteer to sin or to not let sin take control of our body. But we are to present our, our members, meaning any part of our body, our eyes, our hands, our ears, our mouth, our, our whole body is to be presented to God to do righteous things. You know, there, there's an insisting in Scripture that we have control over what we do with our own bodies. Christ's death and the power of God's Spirit gives us the ability to control our bodies. And those of us who are saved can only sin by choosing to sin. By choosing it. In church, when we choose to give in to lust, we've chosen to walk a path of a disordered and idolatrous sexual desire that is enslaving and destructive. Lust completely rips sex from the context of marriage and it reduces it to satisfying a bodily craving. Lust is seeking sexual pleasure without a person, without, without an intimate relationship the way that God created it and without a promise. And that's the promise of marriage. That's why so often in premarital sexual relationships and even sadly in, in some marriages, one person ends up so crushed and heartbroken because in the act of sexual intimacy, one person is saying, I love you, and the other person is saying, I love this. I've been counseling, uh, I've been a certified biblical counselor for almost eight years now. And I have met with husband after husband after husband after couple after couple after couple that has walked through that very thing right there. I love my spouse. He or she just wants me physically. And that's it. And we're going to see in just a few moments what lust looks like when someone is overtaken by it. And then I want to contrast that with how we are to handle lust in this life. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me now all the way to the, New, or the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. I could not think of a better portion of scripture to walk through this morning than this right here. And for those of you who have been in church any length of time, you know that I'm going to the story of Potiphar's wife and Joseph. 
Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39, and I'm going to start reading in verse 4, and I'm going to read all the way through most of this chapter. And so bear with me because we see a bunch of things here in the text. Verse number 4, it says, And so Joseph found favor in, in his sight, speaking of Potiphar, and he attended him. And he made him overseer of his house, and he put Joseph in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and all of that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against, he didn't say Potiphar, he says sin against God. And she spoke in verse 10 to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men were in the house, of the house were in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hands and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant who you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Verse 19, As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way of your servant treating me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoner were confined, and he was there in prison. But look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. What we see in the text is, is insightful and in that we see a picture of lust at work in Potiphar's wife. She set her eyes uh, upon Joseph. She was drawn to him and she had to be with him and nothing would, and she would stop at nothing until she got what she wanted. She pursued him. She pressed him. She pulled at him. She pressured him. And that is lust, relentless. Relentless in this life. In Potiphar's wife's mind, she'd already gone to bed with him and now she wanted the actual act. Do you guys remember what I said in last week's sermon that sin is an inflammation of the imagination? We see it right here in the text. Potiphar's wife was not going to stop until she had what she wanted. Her desire was completely out of control. The woman here in the text is a picture of so many people today. Our culture, our society, 
has redefined marriage and sex to the point that having sex outside of marriage and and outside of the confines of Scripture is totally normal. You combine all of that with free pornography and and websites that are designed for one-night stands and hookups, bars, clubs, and, and the like, where, where people go not just to have fun, but they're seeking sexual pleasure and fulfillment through them. They say that they are looking for love, but they are inflamed with lust. And so, Pastor, what on earth do we even do? What do we do? We are inundated with a culture and a society that is sex-driven, And so what do we do as believers? How do we maintain holiness in this life? How do we seek the things of God and replace those desires in our mind? Well, the first thing I want you to note this morning is that we must know God's standard, and that is the key to guarding your heart. We have to know God's standard. And that's what you see here in Joseph as he's pressed by this pagan woman. His reasons to stand firm are not about personal risk or even personal danger, but the fact that such a betrayal would be dishonorable. That's why. I mean, Potiphar trusted Joseph so much that he didn't even check at how Joseph was managing all of his household. I mean, he knew Joseph would do everything with excellence. In fact, the the scriptures tell us that God blessed the house because of Joseph. And so Joseph's motives for following the will of God were a sincere conscience. It it was Joseph saying, I want to seek to live up to the trust and the honor that's been placed in me, not just by Potiphar, but by God first. I mean, Joseph, think think back with me to this story in Scripture. Joseph is the only God-fearing man in all of Egypt. The only one. I mean, the Egyptians were certainly religious people, but they did not serve the one true living God. They had their own gods. They, and, and the people that said that they believed in God are the ones that sold Joseph into slavery. He, they're the reason he was there. And so Joseph could have turned his back against God because of his own siblings. He could have, have, have had points where he reasoned with himself that there is no point in following God when no one else around me is following God. And I could not be, help but be drawn back to the New Testament and the example of Peter in, in Matthew chapter 26 where we find that it is so much easier to boldly proclaim our faith when we're amongst other like-minded people. And it's so much more difficult to do it when we are the only ones standing alone. Amen? But do you see what Joseph did? He went to God's standard. He, He lived out his life under God's definition of purity and holiness. Joseph knew what was right. He knew that it would be wrong to give in to Potiphar's wife's temptation. But Joseph also believed that that God would bless him for doing what was right. Do you guys remember just a few chapters before this? 
Joseph had already had a dream that indicated that God had a plan to exalt him. And so Joseph's like, I can't sin against God. I, I can't. Even though I'm separated from the people that I will be over, I wanted to be sure that I was still in God's favor. I mean, Joseph was modeling for us how to handle temptation all the way back to the first verse that we put on the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee, flee sexual immorality. Joseph ran out of the house. He got away. Why, though, church? Why? Because our physical temptation is very powerful. And we have to protect ourselves from its presence by fleeing, by getting out. I want to just say it this way. Run. Just run. Run. Do not ever, please, please hear me out, church. For those of you who know um, my, my testimony, I was addicted to pornography from the age of 11 until I was 24 years old. I didn't purposefully look for pornography as an 11-year-old boy. I came across it while I was staying at a friend's house. And it took everything in me to hide for years and years and years from my parents so they wouldn't find out. I took a computer class when I was in the seventh grade so I could learn how to completely clear out the history on the computer internet so my parents would never even know. And I lived day after day after day of misery. And then I got married and God blessed me with a beautiful, gracious, and loving wife. And I put her through absolute hell on earth. And I allowed for it to destroy how I viewed women, how I treated my own mother. And so I'm telling you from experience, do not put yourself in a place where you will be tempted to compromise. Don't. Don't even flirt with sin. Don't even play with lust because you will lose and you will lose badly. You and I have to understand this morning that lust is the opposite of love. And knowing God's standard helps each one of us to establish boundaries in our lives for keeping ourselves protected. It took me years of marriage to realize that sex was to be a meaningful, worshipful act unto God. It took me years to realize that it was to be a picture of unity and, and oneness in this life. And when, our in, when we are intimate, we are totally vulnerable and are at one with another person. Completely defenseless. And the point is simple. Sex is to be a sign that unity exists not just physically, but spiritually. And when couples if you're married in here, I, I, I want you to just um, listen to me for just a moment. When, when you are married and as a couple, if you are not regularly being sexually intimate, there is something wrong. 
there's something wrong. Unity is broken if there is no intimacy between a husband and a wife and you are open for satanic attack. Sex is not just for procreation or for pleasure, it's for protection as well. I want you to look at these these verses on the screen. It says, A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. And this is crucial. Do not deprive one another sexually, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. And in some versions, prayer and fasting is spoken here. And then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Married people should have sex with their spouse because of the ongoing temptation to engage in sexual immorality. Both spouses should fulfill the sexual rights that are due to the other spouse, the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. Christian marriage is to be understood as a mutual surrender of oneness to meet the needs of the other person. And to that end, both husbands and wives, and I say this term with all conviction, we have an obligation to each other. We have an obligation as a part of our mutual commitment to be sexually available to one another. And these obligations are so conclusive in Scripture that Paul said that a wife's body does not belong to herself but to her husband's. And the same principle is true of the husband's body in regards to the wife's. And with that being said, I want to say a few things. Nothing that I have said thus far justifies abuse or coercion in any way, shape, or form. Amen? There is, though, a binding obligation in Scripture to serve our partner with physical affection. And I'll even take it a step further. It's an awesome obligation. It is an awesome obligation. Because out of the billions of people on earth, God has chosen one and one alone to meet our sexual needs. And there is to be no one else. None. And harm comes when we deprive one another. Oh, hey, Tim, would you go back to the the second half of that verse? Paul said, do not deprive one another sexually. That word deprive there in the Greek comes from the same word that we get our English word defraud. The same exact word Well, pastor, what does that even mean? Well, when we deny physical affection and sexual intimacy to our spouse, we are cheating them. We are cheating them of something that was God-orchestrated and God-ordained and God-given gift inside the context of marriage. And sexual deprivation in marriage has not only to do with its frequency, but men, it also has to do with romance. And now all of the men are like, you shut, I'm I'm done. I I can't hear you. Husbands, I want to just say something to you. We are told in Scripture 
to render to our wife the affection that she is due. We are to render to, that means we are to give, we are to woo our wives. We are to romance, or we're to date our wives. My wife and I today have been together for 17 years. Today, like on this very day, 17 years ago, she said to me, after a, a lot of things, but she, she said to me, I'll be your girlfriend. And we started dating. And it was a year later that I asked her to marry me. And, and less than four months later, we were married. And this year, we'll have been married for 16 years. Or seven, sorry, 15 years. Don't, don't tell her I messed that up. Men, you have an obligation to, to learn your wife. You have an obligation to know what makes your wife tick and what tickles her and what ticks her off. Men, you have an obligation to that. And women, on the, on the flip side of that, on the flip side of that, women, according to Scripture, you should not deny intimacy with your spouse just because your husband didn't say that he loved you that day. Or because he had an attitude at 6 o'clock in the morning when there was nothing ready for him to leave for work or there was no gas in the car. We oftentimes put stipulations upon the intimacy that's occur in our life, but that intimacy is truly not really about us. First and foremost, it's a worshipful act unto God before it is about my needs or hers. And deprivation in either sense gives occasion for the deprived individual to look elsewhere for that fulfillment. And that's what will begin to destroy your marriage. I mean, Satan's greatest strategy when it comes to sex is to do everything that he can to encourage sex outside of marriage or to discourage sex within marriage. And guess what? It's an equal victory for Satan if he accomplishes either of those plans in your marriage. And the phrasing that we see here and those couple of verses that were on the screen were a command, not a suggestion to us. And so a Christian husband and a Christian wife must not accept a poor sexual relationship. There may be problems in your marriage. There may be problems with your spouse. Maybe you've been hurt by them. Maybe you've continued to be hurt by them. A lot of times things are not easily overcome or not quickly solved. But God still wants every Christian marriage to enjoy a sexual relationship because it's a genuine blessing, not a burden or a curse. And so God's purpose in marriage is that together you and your spouse would be better as you pursue Jesus and advance the gospel. That's why it's so dangerous for you and I to misapply passages of Scripture about marriage and, and intimacy or have some illusion that just because that you've gotten married, you're never going to struggle with lust ever again. Because in the end, marriage is not what fixes your lust issue. Potiphar's wife was the example. Marriage was not the, the answer. And Joseph reminds you and I 
that it's about applying what we know about God's standard and his purpose for marriage that will help keep our hearts and our minds free from lust. I mean, apart from redemption, lust is a sin that damns and destroys forever. Now, now, you may say, and I've had this conversation over the last week with a few individuals here in this church, you may say, well, what if I identify more with Potiphar's wife than I do with Joseph? What if that's me? Well, the reality is, is that more people do identify with Potiphar's wife, whether they want to admit it or not. They don't. Do you remember in the New Testament, the woman that was caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8? Do you guys remember? Do you guys remember what Jesus said to her? He acknowledged that the woman caught in adultery had sinned, but he says, go and sin no more. I mean, she was guilty, but Jesus didn't condemn the woman caught in the act of adultery. How is that even possible? How is it that, that Jesus, who came to fulfill the law, did not condemn the woman that the law said she should have been stoned? How is it possible? And the answer is stunning. Really, it's kind of shocking this morning. It's her salvation, and it's ours. That's how. It's salvation. Because when we embrace the gift of salvation through Christ and respond to the Holy Spirit's work in us, forgiveness comes and condemnation leaves. There are moments in this life where my mind will run back to those places still. Ten years Ten years beyond the last time I watched anything pornographic. Ten years. And there are still moments in my own fleshly weakness where my mind will run back to that place if I'm not careful. And I have to speak the gospel to myself moment by moment by moment in those situations. I have to do as Paul commanded in, in Corinthians about casting down imaginations and, and taking every high and lofty thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. But I have to bring myself back to one place. Romans 8.1 Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That doesn't give me a license to continue to sin, but it reminds me who I am and whose I am. That I'm a child of God, even, even when my mind doesn't want to seek that which is good. And as we are saved by the grace of God, we experience redemption in this life and we are holy and we are acceptable before God's salvation breaks the power of sin in your life and enables you and I to live a, a clean life. Salvation breaks the power uh, of sin because we've been pardoned and purchased through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so what you and I need to understand this morning is that we've been called to live a holy life. Do you remember what the very opening passage of Scripture said? God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. And so what can we do 
if you and I have been languishing in the sin of lust? What, what if we have been living with the guilt of lust? What if, what if we're worried about lusting in the future? We have to first, we have to remember that there is grace for the past. Amen? There is grace for the past. Paul reminds the church in Corinth that you are in Christ and you've been cleansed and washed and sanctified. Your sins have been covered and you've been given a new record. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old things or the former things are passed away and behold, all things become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. There is grace for the past, but there's also guidance for the present. And that guidance really brings us the glory of the future. Christ not only forgives, but he also renews and he restores. We need to learn not just the principle of radical amputation in this life. To radically remove the things that are unholy from my life. But we really need to learn the principle of radical replacement. What do I do in this life when I have stripped all of the bad things out? What do, what do I do? Where do I go? Who do I turn to? We have to radically replace those things in this life with the things of God. And so though they're not going to hit the screen, I want to give you three things. I want to give you three things. That if you're in here and you're walking through dealing with the sin of lust in your life, it doesn't matter if you've been walking through it for 25 years or a year. There's three things, three things I want to give to you in just a moment. So I've shared with you already briefly about the stuff that I had to walk through. And for those of you who have been here any length of time, you've heard my wife and I's testimony and some of the stuff that we've had to walk through. And, and with her permission, I uh, was, was given the okay to share a few things. So my wife and I, um, we have so many people come up to us and they're like, you guys just, you guys exude love for one another. You guys are a beautiful example of marriage. Your kids are well behaved. And I kind of chuckle and said, I'm like, come to our house for a day. And, and <laughs> My wife and I are both sinful people. And um, it's taken us a long time to get to where we are today. And there are moments in, in days and sometimes weeks where we fight and our kids are bad and we have to yell at them or we have to spank them. We have to guide them to why, you know, we don't do these types of things. There are moments when my wife and I still struggle with things from the past. For those of you who know a little bit about my wife's testimony, my wife came into our relationship having come out of physically and mentally and emotionally abusive relationship before she got with me. 
a man that controlled every aspect of her life and, and forced her in, into uncomfortable, intimate things. My wife didn't really have a good father figure, had nobody to lead and guide her spiritually, and my wife still, still has to guard her heart and her mind because she struggles with her thought life. Thinking something and then allowing it to play over and over and over again and, and allowing for it to, to um, try to attempt to figure out some fantasy. You take that and you couple it with my pornography addiction and it was a whirlwind in our home for year after year after year. As your pastor, I don't want to stand before you and, and have to tell you because of my own pridefulness, I don't want to have to tell you that my wife and I had to seek counseling. But we did because we needed someone to hold us accountable. We needed somebody who was going to ask us the hard questions. We needed somebody who was going to come alongside of us and say, I I'm going to hold your arms up when you're weak. And so if you're in here today, whether you struggle with lust or not, you, you need to have somebody that holds you accountable. You need somebody in your life that, that, that you can open up to and you can confess and you can come clean and that they can shoulder your life with you because that's what the, the Christian life is about. It's not about being an island unto yourself because that's scary and it's dangerous. And so you need someone to hold you accountable. And then you need the Bible because you need to immerse yourself in the truth of God's word every single day. You need to saturate your mind with those truths. Don't just study to learn, study to live differently. Let it affect you and infect you and ooze from you. But then you need community. Be with people who are trying to live holy lives too that have a hunger for the things of God. Get in church if you're not in church. Be in a small group when we launch them in the fall. Be a part of a community. Find a place to serve and then be faithful. Be faithful to that. Because without those three things, without accountability, without the word of God, without the Bible, and without community, my wife and I would still be stuck in a rut we need those three. And so this is how we're going to end. This is how we're going to end. Statistically speaking, over 60% of the people sitting in this room are dealing with lust in some form or facet. I'm not asking you to come and stand on this platform and confess all your sins to the people that are sitting out here in the congregation. But I think we have to take a moment and kind of hit the brakes a little bit. I think we got to press pause. And we have to take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to examine us. Hey, Tim, would you put up that last slide for me? Please, and thank you. 
there are two email addresses that are there on the screen. One is, is mine, the bottom one, and the top one is my wife's. I'm going to ask you to do something really bold this morning. If you're dealing with lust in any form or facet, I'm going to ask you if you're a woman to text or to, to email my wife at that email address. It's a private email address. Nobody will see it except for her. And men, I'm going to ask you to, to email that bottom one. That's going to come directly to me. My wife and I want each one of you to know what it means to live in freedom because of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You don't have to live with a lust problem. You don't have to live in, in a place where your thought life leads you down dark, dark paths. You don't have to live with a pornography problem. We want to be able to help you because the freedom that you will find through, through Jesus Christ is liberating. You'll begin to experience a, a little piece of heaven because of the relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this is what we're going to do. We're just going to close in an attitude of prayer. There's going to be no formal dismissal like we typically send you out. We're going to close in an attitude of prayer. I'm going to ask a few members of the prayer team to be readily accessible. I myself will be uh, available as well. Maybe you're in here and you need to pray with somebody and talk to somebody today before you leave. We'll be, we'll be available. Maybe you just need to get alone with God here at this altar or at your seat. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to give you an opportunity, right, to, to pray the, the words of David, God, search me and know me. And if there's any wicked, wickedness in me, reveal it to me. And so this is how I would like for us to end. And, and I will ask that as you, you do get wrapped up praying, I'm all for socializing after church. I'm just going to ask that you would do so outside of the worship center as to not uh, be a distraction in here. And so I'm just going to ask for you to take the next few moments of time to just seek the Lord. And um, I'll be available down here if anyone would like.